0: Here Comes the Pain Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain POD. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Pain D C. I am so, so excited about this episode for a number of reasons. One, because we have a super smart person to talk about both current affairs issues, what's happening in the world, but also talk about important issues of electing women in politics. But I also have one of my personal, professional mentors on. I'm talking about Christina Reynolds. She's Executive Vice President of Communications with EMILY's List. Christina, how are you?
1: I'm great, Joel. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. This is great. is great.
0: I'm so excited to have you. All of um, the folks that we work with would get a kick out of uh, the first folks that we've worked with in the past would get a kick out of the fact that I'm sitting here interviewing you for a podcast uh, at this point in our careers. Um, But there's so much to talk about and I'm glad to have you on. So I figured we'd start by what's happening in the world, particularly what's happening in the political world right now. And of course, I'm talking about. Um, the recent passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, We are in the midst of a celebration of her life and her career this week, and um, she will be laid to rest, uh, I believe, later today. And soon we will understand and know who the next Supreme Court Justice nominee will be from the Trump White House, and we know that Republicans on Capitol Hill have already lined up to support that, despite the fact that they are shattering all norms and doing so um, I wanted to, I guess, get your take on um, first, I guess, just Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her impact, but also how you think about this coming nomination fight.
1: Yeah, I mean, to start with Justice Ginsburg, um, you know, she was an icon, right? Um, we, you know, there's a notorious RBG. I mean, she is someone that young people, old people, people who probably couldn't name you know half of the supreme court justices you know who she is um and you know what she stands for i mean honestly the fact that i can sign for my own credit card is because of ruth bader ginsburg the idea that she graduated first in her class from law school and then couldn't get a job and then went on to fight for women and people who were whose rights were being trampled in a a wide variety of ways um, is is someone who whose passing will be so greatly felt um, and who we all understand who she was and I think, um, you know, can can take a look at her and and, and and aspire to be someone who fights for justice in the ways she did. You know, this year has been so hard and, and I look at it and with the loss of her and with the loss of John Lewis, um, we have lost people who literally devoted their lives to fighting for other people's rights to fighting for what's right, and who also by all accounts seem to have been kind and decent human beings as they did it, who left, you know, um, who, who were the, you know, were mentors of their own for people who, who left them inspired and, and ready to fight. And I think there are a large number of us, I suspect you and I are two of them, who will go to the voting booth in November or whenever we go with them, you know, in our minds and in our hearts.
0: I, th- I think those are some really good points that you raised there, Christina. And um, I guess my mind also just turns to just the legacy, um, not just in her work that you spoke about, but also you know the personal legacy that she leaves behind. I imagine there are a lot of um, young and maybe not so young anymore <laughs> uh, women in politics who were who were who were impacted by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who maybe got into the public square because of. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's impact, and um, I know that part of your work is, you know, creating a seating ground for these young women to feel comfortable with getting engaged in the civic process. Do you, do you get the sense that um, the, the very appropriate memories of RBG that we're seeing this week is going to, you know, be something that helps you as you tell the story of why it's so important for women to be engaged in politics?
1: Yes. Um, And, you know, not to get too political, but it's a political podcast. so I'm going to do it. Um, I think it's both going to drive more women. Not that, you know, let me tell you, women were engaged. They were ready to come out, I think. um, and, And they've been running. I mean, one of the things that we like to note at Emily's List is our record for women reaching out to us and saying, hey, I'd like to run for office. Was in the 2015-2016 cycle, and in those two years, about 900 women came out and said, "Hey, I, I'd like to run. Can you help?" Um, that was a, that was a record. We called it the Hillary bump. You know, it was a big deal. Um, in the in the almost four years since Donald Trump got elected, so a longer time frame, but 60,000 women just about have come out and and said, "I want to run." You're seeing it all across the country, right? Women are running. Um, everywhere we at Emily's List like to call it the best kind of problem to have, where there are races where we've got more women running than you know seats available, where we have women primarying each other and things like that, and and great, you know, we should have more women running, and we are seeing record numbers of women in in Congress and in state legislatures, and, but what I would say is those record numbers in Congress are 25, you know, they are they are not enough, and just like you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Was was an inspiration for so many of us to look at and see. Look what a woman can do. Look what her voice can mean. Um, there's still, you know, she was one of you know only four women who've ever served on the Supreme Court, and um, and that's something that is uh, you know that 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 I think motivates a lot of us. She's also you know we we talk about this this question of what will it mean and what will the the this. Supreme Court fight? What will her passing? What will it all mean in the election? And it's hard not to. We're, you know, in, in the 30s, right? 39 and then days out. Um, and the reality is, you know, there's there's a conventional wisdom that, that it only matters to Republicans, that Republicans are the ones who vote on courts. And unfortunately for us, historically, that's been true. Um, and I would argue, I, I think that in a Trump era, we've seen so many bad Um, justices and and judges in general put on courts, um, that has shifted. And we saw it in 2018, where in 2018, that that Kavanaugh fight was thought to be, that's going to galvanize Republicans and that's going to change the election. And instead, it reminded a lot of suburban women that their rights, and particularly the reproductive freedom, was up for grabs, was totally at risk. And they came out and they voted and they flipped the House. And I think what we're seeing now, polling tells us, Democrats are actually more engaged by a Supreme Court fight, and um, and we feel that you know we saw. I mean, it's interesting. Republicans are saying that they've had near record numbers of fundraising. I don't know about you, Joel, but I haven't seen them put out any numbers, and we have put out numbers, and they're you know they they blow the roof off, right? Um, and so what we're seeing is that Democrats saw her passing. They were already engaged by the Supreme Court, and they saw her passing, and they thought, now this is this is that seat. This is that woman who stood up, you know, on so many issues um, and and carried the flag for so many of us, for our rights, for our health care, right? Obamacare, it's so important that we protect that. Um, And that seat is now, um, you know, potentially going to be filled by Donald Trump. And That's driving Democrats. And so I think we're going to see an already engaged electorate be pretty, pretty fired up um, come Election Day.
0: Yeah, I think those are some really good points that you raised, Christina. And, you know, just again, kind of staying engaged on this issue about the court's. Um, So personally, I I have a problem whenever I hear people talk about women's issues, not because they're not important, but because I think it almost like minimizes it and limits it to the fact that like it's only women who care about like women's reproductive rights. Right. Or it's only women who care about, um, you know, all of these other kind of sundry of issues that get boxed in there. Um, Look, from a product of a working mom, she cares about financial issues. She cares about um, security issues, not just like local security issues, but national security issues. She cares about health care, um, yeah. but I imagine all of those issues really, when you think about this seat being open, are are issues that we're concerned about, and, I, and I'd imagine at Emily's List there are issues that you are monitoring. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how this opening maybe creates some peril or creates some concern yeah. about those issues?
1: Well, yes, and first I, I want to address your point is a really good one. And I think I, I've heard my boss quote Kamala Harris a lot, where she's noted that in events, Kamala Harris will be asked, hey, can you tell me about women's issues? And she said, oh, you want to talk about the economy? Because the reality is everything's a woman's issue, right? Like everything matters. It, it all um, impacts women who are often driving, um, you know, they lead many families. Um, you know, we talk about issues like equal pay. Well, if if, you know, if a married couple's, if one of the people in the married couple isn't getting paid enough, that's a that's an issue for the whole family, not just the woman, right? And so um, so we see these all as issues. I mean, you know, to start with Roe v. Wade, you know, we have senators saying, I want a justice who will overturn Roe v. Wade. This is, Roe v. Wade simply allows women to make healthcare, their healthcare decisions for themselves. And it is a right that more than 70% of the American people support. They are on the wrong side of this and they're gonna find that out at the ballot box. But what's scary is that we may find that out from the Supreme Court, how that right taken away, despite an overwhelming majority of people, you know, support reproductive freedom and and Roe specifically. Um, We've got, we talked a little about Obamacare. I mean, you know, Donald Trump tries to claim he's for supporting people with pre-existing conditions, but his executive order did absolutely nothing. and he is literally suing right now to try and overturn it. and And let's be clear, Joel. I mean, outside of the millions of people who have pre-existing conditions, because they had asthma, because they have diabetes, because they've had cancer in the past, or whatever, um, we now have seven million people in this country who've had uh, the coronavirus. And we know there are long-term impacts of that for many of those people, and we know that number is going to grow tragically. And so we have a big pre-existing condition problem coming up at a point when the court, the Senate, the Congress, the President are trying to overturn the very right to protect those people. Um, and so, yeah, these are, these are all issues that our candidates talk about a lot because, because it matters who's in the court. It also obviously matters who's in Congress, right? And it matters who's in the White House and who's in those state legislative seats um, where, you know, what we're seeing a lot, a lot of what the court looks at is state is, is bad bills passed by state legislatures. And that's where we can get overturning of decisions um, like, the, like Roe v. Wade. Like, I mean, you know, there's been a discussion of overturning things like Brown v. Board which is crazy. Um, but, you know, there are rights that the Supreme Court has delineated from, you know, from the right to the freedom to marry no matter who you love, from, you know, the, the voting rights, which we know they already undermined. It could still get worse or we could make it better. And these are all things that the court um, has to deal with, but also elected officials need to deal with. And, and that's why at Emily's List, we work to elect
0: women who are going to fight on the right sides of those issues. Hey, Christina, I uh, appreciate you kind of going through that. And I think you were so right to just bring up all the different issues that really, again, are on the ballot. Well, they're, well, one, they're, they're at risk for this nominating process that we're at, but they're on the ballot in 39 days. Right. And they're going to be the issues that I think um, progressives are going to be fighting for and people who are kind of standing on the side of uh, women's Um, rights and women's equality they're going to be fighting for as well one more question on kind of just this subset of our conversation and it's the breaking of norms that we're seeing from republicans and um i almost yeah i almost deign to use that term because it almost makes it sound quaint i mean it's really more than the breaking of norms it is it is just a disregard (laughs) oh my gosh it's it's it is the disregard for any kind of Allegiance to what we know to be core to our democracy and to our country and um, just the callousness I almost feel like the hypocrisy argument doesn't even feel strong enough anymore because what what it feels like to me is that Republicans have just decided their voters are not going to penalize them for being hypocrites but you know you worked in the Obama White House and you understand um, politics at such a macro level beyond the work that you're doing now can you talk a little bit about just what you think when you see republicans um you know really going against what we know to be kind of the way that these institutions are supposed to work they are abusing the senate they're abusing the yeah. courts and judiciary can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah you know I, I wish i wish i i mean my thoughts are are just that it makes me so angry and so sad for these institutions i mean i was i am the daughter of a marine and a teacher And both of them taught me that, number one, public service is a good thing. Um, And number two, that truth and fairness and justice matter. And I think that right now we have a Republican Party that is running roughshod over both of those ideas. They constantly undermine the work of government, the importance of that work, the work of public servants. Um, You know, Trump openly mocks people who have been, you know, doctors, scientists, you know, the people, the whistleblowers, right, you name it, people in government trying to provide services to the American people, whatever that service is, whether it's protection, I mean, the military, the, the, the way that he talks about the military, and you know, he mocks the Atlantic story and says, oh, that's not true, but, but he says it on the record in his rallies. So, you know, we've watched him Time after time, and then and then, you know, you and I both both got our start in research. I mean, I believe in facts, right? I believe in truthiness, for goodness sakes, (laughs) right? Like I think that if something is true you should say it, you know, and if it's not true, you shouldn't say it. And it's that simple and I I spent a lot of my career telling people you can't say that, it's not quite true, you know, and um and they don't just blow past that. They don't just budge the truth. They lie. They are lying. I mean Right now, Donald Trump is not just openly lying to the American people. He's doing it on issues like voting. He's undermining institutions that matter in this country, like voting, like the media. Um, you know, you name it, he's going out there and undermining it. I wish I had a coherent thought about it. My thoughts are just sort of, um, this is not okay. And I think it's 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 one of the many reasons why it is so important um, that we get him out of there and get out the Republicans who have just carried his water, um, because we are going to do long-term damage, not just to those institutions, but to our democracy. Well,
0: and speaking of those, speaking of those Republicans, right? Yeah. I mean, one of those races I know for a fact that you're watching is what's going on up in Maine with yeah. Susan Collins, and he's really got her between a, hard, uh, a rock and a hard place. Because look, any the political nerds like me and, and you, we know that. Collins has been able to feed on being viewed as the scion of the middle and this kind of independent warrior and this moderate warrior. But that's not the case anymore. And I think voters in Maine see that they see that she uh, rubber stamped that Kavanaugh nomination. They see that she has been a rubber stamp for President Trump on all of his overreaches of power and for Mitch McConnell and his legislative graveyard. And now she's trying to kind of play both sides of it by, you know, putting out a rather empty statement um, earlier this week about how she believes that the nomination should happen later in the process. I think she's seeing the poll numbers there. She's seeing Sarah Gideon is not just gaining on her, but is actually neck and neck with her. And I think yeah. she's she sees her political future um, really, really at the precipice.
1: Yeah, I think she also saw that they were going to have enough votes that she got a free pass. And I think that, uh, but I think your your take on that is exactly right. And And main voters it's you know main voters are seeing it we're also seeing, you know susan collins used to be the rare republican that got some support from groups that supported things like reproductive freedom like climate you know like you know stopping climate change i'm not uh but you know like the climate groups and the and they're with sarah gideon this time because they've seen susan collins is going along with donald trump almost every time and um including on some vital she supported Kavanaugh that right there to flipped the court over to a conservative court and while we have had some okay rulings since then thanks to Justice Roberts flipping over um, she put all of those rights that we talked about earlier at risk with that one vote and that's not the Susan Collins that Maine I think thought they were sending into office so yeah we're seeing I mean that race I've seen Sarah Gideon has been leading in several polls. Um, She's a fantastic candidate, by the way. I highly recommend people take a look at her. Um, She's been a leader in the Maine legislature. Um, My favorite story about Sarah Gideon is that she first ran for office because someone called and left a message on her, her family's answering machine back when we had those things. Uh, for her husband, saying we want you to run for office, and she called him back and said, "I think I'm going to run," and uh, the rest is is hopefully history. as she hopefully comes to the Senate, but um, but we're seeing that you know we're seeing that in a lot of places. It, it's really the the challenging thing, and I know um, you know I know Republicans who say, and I heard you had you had my former colleague Tim Miller um, on um, you know on your podcast. Um, say this isn't my Republican Party. But the reality is elected Republicans have decided it's Trump's Republican Party. They are following him in lockstep. They have done nothing to stop him. And um, I think that's part of why you're seeing a lot of these, you know, military leaders, former, you know, former Republican office holders and things like that come out for Joe Biden, because Donald Trump is is breaking down the things they value.
0: This Here Comes the Pain Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Uh, We are fortunate enough to be joined today by my friend, my mentor, Christina Reynolds of Emily's List. We're going to take a very quick break and then we'll come right back and continue our conversation. And Christina, when we come back, I want to talk more broadly about the work that you're doing at Emily's List and just really the the stewardship and the leadership in terms of, again, engaging women in politics, not just, you know, turning out the women's vote, right? I think that we minimize the conversation by talking about that, but making sure that we have strong, smart, um, you know, empowered women who are um, a part of our state legislatures and a part of Congress and at the governor's houses, et cetera. I want to hear a little bit more about that, but it's the here comes the pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, and we will be right back. And just like that, we're back. It's The here comes the pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by hip politics network. Lots of great content there to check out and excited to have you here with us this week, where, again, I am joined by my friend Christina Reynolds, who is Executive Vice President of Communications with Emily's List. We're having a really good, important conversation about um, the news of the week, which is obviously the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talking about her impact and about the importance of the courts as we kind of look down the barrel of 40 less, less than 40 days between now and the election. I want to turn the conversation a little bit to talk about Christina's work her day job I don't even call it a nine to five because I know it's more than nine to five with Emily's list and I'd love to hear just you talk about what you guys are focused on talk about really kind of what the group is all about and any kind of special projects or initiatives that you're um, you're uh, pushing this cycle in particular
1: list is, um, we're we're actually 35 years old this year. We're old enough to run for president, I suppose. Um, uh, Emily's List was created because at the time, in 1985, um, no Democratic woman had ever been elected to the Senate in her own right. And our founder had just watched two women lose close races because the the so-called Democratic establishment didn't believe they could win. And so they wouldn't raise them money. And so she said, fine, we'll do it on our own. And she literally sat with a Rolodex for your listeners who are not my age, a Rolodex is like your your phone contacts in, in hard form, um, little cards and everything. They sat with their Rolodexes and they wrote the people they knew and they asked for, for you know, um, a check for uh, Barbara Mikulski was their first candidate. Um, and they raised her money and she ended up being the first democratic woman elected of her own right. Since then we have grown and we have, um, uh, you know, expanded into every office. Um, and have elected um, have elected an amazing number of women. Um, it's what we love. There's a, there's a chart that shows um, in 1985 there were roughly the same number of Republican and Democratic women in the House. I think it was 12 to 13. Um, so yay, you know, 25 whole women. Um, and since then, the number of Republican women this year is, I believe, only one more than it was in 1985 um and the number of democratic women is up in the high 80s so you know we've we've been very proud to get in there and and what emily's list does we don't just raise money now um we get in with candidates we work with them we help them find staff we prep them for debates we you know we try and help them from start to finish we help them learn how to fundraise you know one of our biggest things is um the belief that like anybody can run for office if you're willing to do the work, right? You don't have to be someone who's wealthy and has wealthy contacts. You don't have to be someone who has been running for office all their life. You know, We saw in 2018, the number of amazing women, you look at a Lauren Underwood, a Lucy McBath, Sharice um, Davids, who had never run for office before. And for a variety of reasons, healthcare being a big one for many people, um, raised their hand and said, "I got to do something." Um, and those women are making a huge difference. And we are we are so proud to be able to help them. We also run independent expenditures um, on behalf of candidates. And then we have a training program. Um, those women that I mentioned that come into us and say, "Hey, I'd like to run for office." Um, some of them are just thinking about it. Some of them are ready to run. Sometimes it's town alderman or you know um, dog catcher or whatever the role is. Um, we have created a, a Run to Win program, which is aimed at, we do trainings, we do webinars, we have what we like to call the happiest place on the internet, which is our Run to Win private Facebook book group. And it's all of these women providing each other support um, and you know lifting up when they have good moments and answering questions. And it's things like, I can't figure out childcare while I'm trying to campaign. How do you do it? You know, How are you dealing with the pandemic? Um, and so, It's really, um, I love my job because I get to work with so many, for so many, and with so many amazing women. I mean, you meet any of them, and we we are lucky enough to have them. Sometimes they'll come and say hi at our staff meetings and things like that. Um, And they're they're dynamic, they're diverse, they are interesting, and they bring so much different experience and such an amazing lived experience. Um, It's so important. I mean, this is the you know this you've been in politics a long time our politics is still driven by old white guys and often old wealthy white guys right and you know nothing against those guys they've got their place and they represent you know people um and many of them do good work but you know we shouldn't we shouldn't have to wonder what it's like for a working mom we should have working moms help make the uh, make the decisions we shouldn't have to wonder what it's like for someone who is um you know for example we've got an amazing candidate in texas gina ortiz jones um gina is the daughter of, of uh, an immigrant she is um uh lgbtq and she served under don't ask don't tell you know um she's a military veteran she's got a lot of experience that she brings to the table and that's something that we can use more of that more varied voices more um different lived experiences. We just think government works better that way. I mean, I I will also say we are pretty proud of the fact that when I look around and I look at the way um, Nancy Pelosi has Donald Trump's number and has, you know, held his feet to the fire and gotten a ton passed through the House, when I look at Kamala Harris and the way she has held the administration accountable you know questioning things but her also working with i mentioned lauren underwood on issues like black maternal deaths you know that that, there is is a rising problem and how do we address that um you know when we look at the the people who have really driven some of the fight against trump i see a whole lot of women in there gretchen whitmer you know um Kate Brown out in Oregon, Michelle Lujan Grisham, Stacey Abrams, who, you know, I would argue had that election stolen from her, but is out there fighting every day to get a fair count in the census and a, and a fair count of the votes, um, we could not be prouder to see what these women are doing and to help lift more of them up. I think, um, you're,
0: I think by the way, just your point about Pelosi is such a good one that, like, Consistently, And I've said this, you know, I do work for CBS News. I'm on MSNBC, some other places. And when I've been on there, I've talked about how there the one consistent theme in the pushback to Donald Trump, he does not know what to do with Nancy Pelosi, because it's yep. very clear to me that he's never had, um, you know, and the term strong woman gets thrown around, but A strong woman with a plan (laughs) like Nancy Pelosi, like does not. I mean, you can tell Nancy Pelosi has been in a lot of rooms in her life where she's been underestimated and where she's had to deal with people like Donald Trump. And I am fascinated by by how when the history books get written about this era, Nancy Pelosi is going to be, I think, the chief, um, you know, I would call it protagonist in the story against Donald Trump. But the person who has been able to most effectively figure out the riddle of how do you, how do you counter someone like Donald Trump who has no scruples, who has no morals? Um, And she's been able to do it and do it effectively. And I think she's kind of written the playbook on how to do that. I think, um, frankly, Biden and Harris, that ticket, that team has probably gone to school on what Nancy Pelosi has (laughs) done, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, she's she's got his number, right? But she's also got a plan. You're absolutely right. And I feel like, you know, what we see so much when you look at Mitch McConnell running the Senate and, and Donald Trump running the you know, administration, I suppose, um, you know, who's the grown up in the room, right? Who's the person who's actually trying to get the solution, trying to get to, to answers for people um, and, and help for people? It's Nancy Pelosi. And, you know, I think it's phenomenal. And I think, you know, she's also, um, we've got a lot of women in Congress who are also serving that voice. You know, Tammy Duckworth. Every day is pushing on issues that matter to to veterans, right? And she drives the Republicans crazy too. They don't know what to do with her. You've got a Maxine Waters. You've, you've even got like, you know, Frederica Wilson. Back when um, when Donald Trump insulted a Gold Star widow, you know, was the one to argue and push back against the president, which is not always an easy thing to May, do. Maisie
0: Maisie president. Hirono on several Maisie occasions. Hirono, you've seen her. Hero. I mean. There's just so there's so many. And of course, Elizabeth Warren, the inspired campaign that she ran um, for the Democratic nomination this time around. Um, Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, you know, Christina, something I keep coming back to is like, look, the Democratic gains, the progressive gains. And look, I mean, we're we're both Democrats. We're career Democrats. But um, the gains that this party has seen have been at the direction of women right i mean the the periods where we've done very well over the last two decades have really been when we have allowed women to lead us Uh, most recently two years ago and even if you go back into the 90s um that was an era that was dominated by women stepping up and being a being given license to step up by organizations like yourself yeah it's
1: um it's pretty exciting i think What's also really exciting about it is that what we often see, um, you know, when we talk to women running, they are there are a plurality of reasons that men run for office, and, and I think you, see, you can feel this when you hear it from some of the Republicans, right? They're running to get to the next step. Um, many of them are running to solve a problem as well, but, it, but women are almost always running to solve a problem. They're running because there's an issue they're worried about. You know, we saw it in 2018. So many of our women had their own health care stories from their families, from, you know, we saw um, Alyssa Slotkin, who's a member from Michigan. Alyssa's mother passed away from a cancer that probably would have been caught if she had had health insurance. You know, you see these stories that drove these women into um, into running, and it's... it's I mean, Lucy, Lucy, McBath. Lucy
0: McBath, Lucy McBath with her yes. son, losing her son. Yeah. The gun that's right. yeah,
1: and and you know, it's something Iona Presley says very well: the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power, right? And that's what we see: is these women taking those issues that have impacted them or their community, and and bringing those voices into Congress, into the state legislatures, into the governors' mansions, and. And it's something so powerful. And I do think it makes a difference, you know, watching a Katie Porter give someone the business, you know, um, knowing that she is fighting for the people that she dealt with when she was helping, like, hold the banks accountable for bad mortgages and bad lending, you know, watching um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and and Ayana, and, you know, um, raise these issues for people in their communities um, I think is so powerful because you you know they're speaking from from some of their life, but also from the people that 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 um, have spoken to them. And it's the thing that I love the most is um, when our women get elected, they keep doing the town halls. You know, they keep talking to their constituents. And you know, we saw it at tough times. We saw some tough impeachment. You know, town halls. Right? They didn't stop doing them. And and. Um, it's something we're really proud of, is they know, like, I'm going to stand up. You may not always agree with me, but I'm going to stand up for what I believe in, and I'm going to try and speak for what this community, you know, needs. And um, it's something that makes me really proud every day to get to work for these these great women.
0: Christina, I mentioned um, a little earlier um, the 2020 Democratic uh, primary, and you know, yes. of course, I think the most, yes. look, the most notable women who, who ran, um, there were many, many qualified women, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, who is our current uh, vice presidential nominee, yep. who I know so many people are excited about to support yeah. her. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who just ran such an inspired um, campaign, a really transcendent campaign. Um, and I just wonder kind of from your perspective, look, you've, you've been in the White House, you've you've been in leadership positions on a number of Presidential campaigns and even campaigns at lower levels as well. But just, I guess, from, from a looking at like kind of the, the presidential process, like obviously we haven't had a woman president. The perspective of your organization in terms of thinking about like how to keep women engaged, given the fact that again, we had another cycle where we had these very accomplished, qualified women who were not able to get to the top of the ticket. I know that women are going to be fired up to support Joe Biden, but obviously there's a disappointment. We both worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign yeah. in 2016. What is that challenge like for you every day?
1: You know, it, it can be hard. And, and honestly, one of the challenges that we face at Emily's List is, it is harder for a woman, you know, women face challenges that men don't face when they run for office. And we want to be upfront about that and we want to call it out. Um, but we also don't want to discourage women from running. And the good news is what we're finding is women are saying, yeah, I'm, a lot of my life is harder. I'm still going to run. Right. Um, and, but it, it, it's tough. I will say I am a believer in, um, if you can see it, you can be it. Right. I, th- I do think that matters. Um, we actually have an ad out tonight from our, today from our independent expenditure um, about little girls being able to look to the example of Kamala Harris and why that matters. Um, But, you know, so I think, I do think that, I'm also a believer that every woman who runs makes it better for the next one. Um, You and I both, you know, and I think a lot of the country are heartbroken that Hillary Clinton wasn't president. She would have been a great president. I would have liked to have seen her tackle a challenge like the coronavirus, because I think we would have had actual leadership and science and things like that. but I think that Hillary Clinton did make those cracks in that glass ceiling because more people could see her as a nominee and because it woke a lot of people up to the fact that part of what she faced was sexism. And we call it out more now. You know, when a reporter writes a crappy headline, you see it pretty quickly on Twitter in ways that you and I did not when we were working for Hillary, right? I think there was sometimes an assumption of, oh, that's just Hillary.
0: Yeah. and
1: And I do think it woke some people up to what women face and also we don't have to take that, right? I mean, I think um, we saw when there was a, there was criticism of Kamala Harris for being too ambitious, um, which I find ridiculous. Um, You know, ambition is something we praise in men and it's something that we, we criticize in women. And the reality is I think prior to this cycle and seeing those women run and having been through Hillary I'm not sure there would have been the outcry that there was when that came out. And I don't think that's fixed everything in voters' heads, but I think it sure makes some progress, right? I think it makes people stop and say, wait a minute, maybe I do.
0: Look, I think it's it's challenged a lot of us. I'll say this, and look, I worked on that campaign, Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to think I'm a pretty learned guy. I don't think I really fully appreciated what it meant to say that kind of this system was, was kind of built to kind of hold down women until I saw um, firsthand what happened to Hillary Clinton um, yeah. three and a half years ago. And look, she's nobody's victim and she would never portray herself sure. as such. But the, the treatment and the way that that campaign was litigated by, by media, I think you're right. I think a lot of lessons have been learned and I, and I hope that as we look to potentially a Vice President Kamala Harris and um, legions of other future maybe presidents um, yeah. who are going to be women, I, I, I hope that that makes it easier for them. Um, one thing really quickly before we transition from this part of the conversation, sure. you have worked with and around and for so many um, well known women, I mean I think about Obviously, we first met um, in 2007 when you were working on the yeah. Edwards campaign. I know how close mm-hmm. you were to Elizabeth Edwards, yeah. who we both miss dearly. Um, mm-hmm. I think about Hillary Clinton. I think about you worked around Michelle Obama. Just talk a little bit about some of those influences and um, even folks who maybe aren't as well known, like those kind of dynamic, strong women in your life um, who influenced you to be engaged like this in the political sphere.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll say, honestly, it started with my mom. I mean, my, uh, you know, I, I, I take my desire to make communities better and, and, and do something to change things I don't like um, from both my parents. But, you know, my mother was, my dad was a Marine, and, and he traveled a lot. Um, and so my mom was kind of mom and dad and, you know, all things. And watching her work, she went back to school, um, when my sister and I were in elementary school, and and you know, watching her get all those things done, and you know, never like not she didn't hold her tongue, you know, she felt like and she and my dad I can attest to
0: this. Us. I've met I've met Mother Reynolds. That's, That's all right. right. That's she all also, right. She also,
1: as you can also attest, she makes a mean brownie. She does. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it started there, and. You know, I worked for, and interestingly, you know, my first boss out of college, I worked at the ACLU of North Carolina, where my boss was future Congresswoman Deb Ross, who is going to, about to win a seat in North Carolina, um, which is very exciting. Um, I'll be honest, Joel, you know, your point about it wasn't until Hillary that you realized some of those things, that was true for me, too, in some ways, because I mostly worked for male politicians um and so Hillary was a bit eye-opening I mean you mentioned Elizabeth Edwards and just to take a minute there I mean she is someone like me she's a military brat um she's someone who moved around a lot um she was wickedly funny and just brilliant and I feel lucky for the time I got to spend around her but I I particularly feel lucky because she did not suffer fools she did not. no she did not she did not hold her tongue and I am so grateful for, and she pushed women around her like, no, I want you, you're, you're speaking for me too out there. I want you to get out there and, you know, talk up in that meeting. I want you to, you know, have a seat at the table. And, and I remain very grateful for that. I will say I've also not just the politicians, but I have gotten to work with some amazing women. You and I both, um, you know, did spend some time with Jen Palmieri, um, Who's been, you know, both of her books lay out a, a lot of great stuff. If you haven't read them, you should. Dear Madam President was the first one. It's um, it, it it's a lot about the Hillary race, but um, uh, and I got to work with um, uh, Jen O'Malley Dillon when oh, she was boy. still yeah. just Jen O'Malley. Um, we worked together for almost twenty years now, and she is now Joe Biden's campaign manager. And I watch her and I'm just in in awe of of that. And and I think the biggest thing that I've learned is the first like lift other women up, you know, help them, um, you know, where you can, we're not fighting for one woman's seat at the table. Right. We're all, you know, we all do better when there are more of us around. Um, and, and the other thing is just, you know, you're not, I think that a lot of us sit back and think they must know more than we do because they sound so confident, right? They sound so sure. Um, and the reality is no, a lot of this is guessing. It's just your good judgment. And you have, I tell that, I
0: tell that to the young people I work with all the time is like, some Sometimes you just and that's that's not specific to women, but th- that oh, is an yeah. important lesson for young women to understand, I think, as they're coming up is that you don't have to have all the answers and that there's a community of people to support you and lift you up. Two things really quickly. One, I sleep yeah. better at night knowing that Jennifer O'Malley Dillon is at the helm of the Biden campaign um, in the moments where we see the president sounding like a nut job on TV. I do sleep better at night understanding that Jennifer is at the gears of the ship there and I feel a lot better. Um, and then also, you know, you talked about Elizabeth Edwards and I will tell you something that I think gets missed in the long spans of history is the impact on healthcare law that that campaign had and particularly the tutelage and leadership of Elizabeth Edwards and being very critical to guiding our healthcare um, policy discussion which impacted that race and i know that that's like a famous thing for people who like didn't people who don't win presidential races they're like yeah but our issue's won. i can tell you for a fact yeah. our issue there won and it's changed people's lives and i know mrs edwards um, has to be looking down somewhere pretty happy at the work that she did to lay the foundation there uh, joel
1: you are absolutely right and i you know i i spend a lot of time thinking there are days when donald trump does something and i just think man i would love to see elizabeth edwards tweet on that right um but uh i don't think he would
0: enjoy it too much
1: he would not he sure wouldn't um but i but i think you're absolutely right on the policy front and um her impact on that was really really
0: terrific we're here with christina reynolds this is the here comes the pain podcast i'm your host joel Payne. We're going to take another short, short break, and then Christina, who has been so kind with her time, is going to give me another few minutes and she's going to let me dig into her career a little bit, which I've been talking about through our conversation, and just talk about some of her experiences that have been formative to get her to where she's gotten to in her career. So it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. We'll be right back. <laughs> And we are back. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. And we are in the home stretch of our conversation with my friend, a um, true leader in the progressive space and a true leader in terms of um, all of the work that we've seen over the last decade in uh, the political space, Um, Christina Reynolds, who is the Executive Vice President of Communications for EMILY's List. And she's a dear friend. And I'm going to lead into this part of the conversation by talking about how christina and i met which is she hired me to work on the edwards campaign back in 2007 when i was a young babe in the woods and she um, hired me to join her research team in chapel hill north carolina on the edwards campaign and you know christina i and look i i think Um, There are certain lessons to take away from all of the stops that we've had in our career, and I'm sure you take them away yourself. I'm amazed when I kind of think about the folks that we had a chance to work with on that campaign. I I can actually physically remember how we sat in the office, and if I look to, like, my right, this person I saw, I remember If we kind of look at our policy shop, that was one stable of desk behind me. There was Kareen Jean-Pierre. There was Mike Signer, former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. There's Heather McGee, McGee. media superstar. They have Eric Schultz, you, Jen Palmieri. I mean, the list goes on. I'm like going to leave people out. Adam Jettleson. We had like so many smart, accomplished people. And I guess I'm just I feel so fortunate that I got a chance to just buy Osmosis. Be around those folks, but just talk to me a little bit about just your experience. You can talk about it there, but in other places, because a lot of those colleagues that you worked with on that campaign, you actually I think previously it worked with on Tim Johnson's Senate race in two thousand two, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
1: so several of them, yes, um, yeah. You know, it's campaigns are interesting business, right? Um, yeah, I, I think you learn something from the winning ones and the losing ones, and. Um, uh, and hopefully, you get to work with good people along the way. That Edwards campaign was certainly an example. Did not end the way we, we would have wanted in many ways. But sure. um, but uh, what you know, one I remain incredibly proud of the policy that that team put out. I mean, I, I like to take credit for it, even though it was you know I didn't do the work. But um, <laughs> uh, but it was um, a a campaign that put out ideas. I was proud of the fact that we talked about poverty which, um, you know, not a lot of presidential campaigns talk a lot about. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, that was, it, we were a good little family that got a lot done and we got to, got to spend time in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which I will never complain about. Um, lots of good barbecue. Lots of, there you go. Good barbecue, good basketball. Um, we may disagree on that one, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, the best thing about campaigns are that you, know, you work like crazy, but you, you, what that means is you're getting so much more experience. You get to see and do so many things. I think that campaigns are innovative you know, because they don't, they don't have enough money. They never have enough money. They never have enough time. And so you figure out creative ways to do things. You figure out ways to reach voters and you get to talk about the issues. And for all of us who are jaded and end up dealing with you know joel you you and i know as as pundits so to speak we talk about the political process a lot and that's interesting you know listen i i love it i'm a hack but um but campaigns also you get to deal with the, the issues right and you get to deal with why am i what do we stand for and what are we doing and primaries are always tough because fundamentally. We're all on the same side, right? Our set, our shared set of values is significantly larger than what divides us.
0: And there can um, only be one winner.
1: <laughs> there can only be one winner. I mean, that's the thing you mentioned this primary. I mean, I think approximately forty-eight hundred people ran in this last presidential primary, and only one of them won. And so, um, it, it's it's really hard. Um, but you do learn a lot, and and I also think we all live in our own bubbles right we see this more now and we see it more in the people who watch fox only watch fox right people who watch msnbc maybe only watch msnbc you see that we kind of collapse into ourselves and campaigns force you to break out of that some right they force you to have a better understanding of what do people in iowa think what do people in you know in south carolina think what do you know what's going on what moves different people and I think that's good for all of us. So I remain grateful for getting the chance to do that. I remain especially grateful for getting to prove that you know people who start as clips guys can go very, very far I, in their careers and end up making the news, uh, as in the case of yourself. Um, I'm a much better I, pundit
0: than I was a, than I was a media monitor. I hope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you were a very good media monitor, but you are a better pundit. You are great. Um, but you know it's uh it is always fun i love getting to um to to talk about campaigns you know i worked you mentioned tim johnson's race in south dakota um i won't say how many years ago it was but it was a lot and um and that was my first race being a research director and running my own shop and it was jen o'malley's first race running her her own shop as a field director and it was uh dan pfeiffer's first race as a communications director he's now on Pod Save America and was a White House, um, you know, senior advisor to Barack Obama for many years. And, you know, when I look at the what what some of my friends from campaigns have gone out and done, it just makes me um, really grateful that they're on our side and still fighting the good fight.
0: I I totally agree with you. Um, Also, just really briefly want you to talk about that experience working in the Obama White House. And there were just so many, um, you know, generational issues that we had to confront. You know, I was in, Majority Leader Harry Reid's office the first two years of the Obama White House, and so um, I was there for Obamacare, I was there for Wall Street reform, etc., and, you know, really living through history. um, That was just such a fascinating experience for me as someone who was still on the ascent growing um, as a public servant, but, you know, that must have been fascinating for you to have that seat to see all the things that we saw. I mean everything from domestic policy to the to the yeah. killing of Osama bin Laden, um just so many things you had to experience.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, I started um I worked on the inaugural committee, so I started the day after the inauguration. But um it was funny because, you know, you get there and you look around and then, you know, part of you thinks this is the White House, when are the grown ups gonna show up? And then you realize you are the grown ups and that's kind of scary. But um, but you also get there and you don't know where the bathroom is, right? You don't know how to reserve a room for the meeting and you're governing on day one, right? And we were, as, as you point out, like this was, um, you know, the height of the recession and we passed, um, you know, the, the uh, stimulus, the Congress, obviously, yeah. the stimulus um, pretty quickly. And, and I remember working with Joe Biden's office a lot to put out the stimulus grants and things like that. Um, you know there was so much to do and and i will say i'm a campaign girl i kind of learned that being in the white house right that um i like having an enemy and that and that was an interesting thing right was that when we were trying to pass healthcare we didn't view anybody as the enemy right we wanted to pass it and so you know, uh, we worked like defense. I can I
0: can attest to it, Christine. We worked like hell to get Republicans yeah. to be be part of that. I mean, we worked hard to get yes. Susan Collins to support that. We worked hard at the maybe at the, the misguided direction of some of our friends in the Democratic sure. Senate to get a number of other Republicans so it could be bipartisan. Because I think what people miss is that mm-hmm. if it's bipartisan, that mm-hmm. I think has a certain amount of credibility with right. the rest of the country that you want, because this isn't. A zero-sum game this is people's lives and you want you want folks to feel good about the governing process so governing yeah. and campaign I, ca- campaigning I've always been fascinated with just the difference between the two um, I've yeah. learned so much about that
1: yeah and so for me I kind of learned that campaigning is probably wh- where where I'm at but I will say this it I, I this sounds cheesy but it's true every day when the gates opened me, I thought, thank goodness, right? Like, what a lucky, like, how great is this? Even the day would be hard. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, oh, just let me get out of this place. But, but you do think like, this is a privilege every day. And you get to work with people and particularly, you know, working with career officials, I worked a lot with different agencies, and working with them and learning, you know, these people who have given their entire careers to the public service, Um, it's, it's part of why I have such a hard time with the way Donald Trump has, has demeaned government service because it is valuable. It is important and it is, you know,
0: we need good people. We need need good, good smart people. people. Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. And so, you know, but I will say it was, it was exciting, right? It was, um, I'm so grateful to have been there. I will also note, um, I, uh, in my, my first year in the white house and, and the president's first year in the white house. He did the first ever presidential picks for, for March Madness. Oh yeah, for he Tar Heels to win it with well, Reggie's well,
0: Reggie's help. I think he got some help from Reggie, right?
1: Well, Reggie, you know, <laughs> <laughs> except that Reggie was a you know was a Duke player, uh-huh. and, so, uh, and he picked Carolina, and we did win it all, and I got to be there and take a picture with the Tar Heels when they came That's to the White That's awesome! And I said in that moment, I can leave now.
0: You, know, you can. You're, you're uh, like you have accomplished it all. We've got yeah, Barack Obama sure, here, yes. and we've got yeah. the Tar Heels here. Christina, right Christy, I have one final question for you, and okay. I promise I will let you go back to your busy existence. Okay. Um, look, we we've talked about it. We are both hacks. We are both campaign people. We yeah. are forty less than forty days away from um, this election. Yeah. Think. Take me into your mind in terms of like what you're looking at. Just coming down the stretch here. What does Joe Biden have to do? What does he What does he have to continue doing? And um, what needs to happen in order for he and his campaign to be successful come November 3rd?
1: Um, I Listen, I think that he needs to continue to show the leadership that he's been showing. He's put out plans on the coronavirus. He's talked about, um, you know, many of the issues that, pre- you know, we, we heard him talk about climate when, when President Trump is saying basically sweep the floor at forest and we won't have fires anymore. Um, you know, I think he needs to continue to show that leadership. Um, and, and make sure, and, and we all, and you know, his campaign is doing this, we all need to continue to contact voters to make sure voters understand that voting is not just safe and legal, that it is important. Um, I think, you know, we're having this silly debate about door knocking versus, you know, voter contact is voter contact. I don't think you have to be at somebody's door to do it, but we have to make sure, and, and I would just say, everyone listening, if you're worried about it, the thing I always say when I have friends, who are like, oh my God, I'm so scared. Great, pick up a phone. Like, I got, I got ways that you can contact voters. Go find a way and go do it because that's the thing that I think we all have to do. I think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are doing the right things. I think, you know, I love seeing them in different states, but honestly, I think they just have to be out there showing the steady leadership that they're gonna show in office. And, um, you know, we have to make sure that we, um, and that we remind people that they're voting for a good thing, right? We all spend a lot of time talking about and sharing all the crazy stuff that Donald Trump says. Um, but we need to share the good stuff too, right? Because you know, Joe Biden gets out there and gives a great speech and it doesn't get the same coverage as Donald Trump saying, oh, I don't know if I'm going to accept the election, right? Like, I, and I get that. But so then it's on us. Let's make sure people see the good stuff. Give them a positive um, choice. Yeah.
0: Well, you have been more than generous with your time. I'm so, so grateful. So great
1: to talk to you. And
0: and, um, I just have to really underscore, Christina is one of the most important people for me professionally. And she was a mentor and she's become a friend. And uh, I'm just so excited that we got to spend this time together and that folks got to hear why i sound somewhat like i have oh, an idea what i'm talking please. about because <laughs> i learned at the knee of people like christina oh,
1: um well, it's been a pleasure joel thank you so much for having me on i thank love you. talking to you and i love seeing all, all every time i turn on my tv i feel like i get to see joel straight.
0: thank you christina it's the here comes the pain podcast i'm your host joel pain represented by hip politics network thank you for joining us for this episode we'll be back god bless and talk to you soon